For several years, the Pure Michigan campaign has attempted to entice additional tourism to our state. If you go to the Pure Michigan website, it says, From scenic routes on the open road to rugged trails, from the snow covered to the well-traveled, they all lead us to the beauty of nature and simple pleasures. Here you can find unique hidden gems and get lost in the music of rolling waves and tranquil forests. Whether you are an urban adventurer or an outdoor enthusiast, a foodie or a thrill seeker, traveling with your family or making memory with friends, all are welcome here. You are on the brink of planning a vacation so unique it can only be classified as pure Michigan. Of course, my, my son says you know you're in Michigan when you cross the border and the roads begin spelling out pure Michigan in Braille as you hit the potholes. The, the idea is, with the Pure Michigan t- campaign is to highlight the attractions that are available in our state so that people want to come here. And of course, we know if they come here, they'll bring their, their wallets with them. And that brings dollars into the, the state, additional revenue. As Michiganders, we understand that's the goal of the M- Pure Michigan campaign. As Christians, can we say the same thing about pure living? Do we understand the goal of pure living? This morning we are returning to our series through 1 Peter. Peter wrote this letter to Christians who were spread throughout the area that we would call Asia Minor. Christians who were experiencing suffering of various kinds from people around them. Specifically, they were suffering because they were Christians. That was the impetus behind their, their suffering. Their, their Christianity made them stand out in their culture and they made them target for various kinds of abuse. It made them, as we labeled them when we went through chapter 1, misfits. They were misfits in their world. Most recently, when we got to the end of chapter 3, Peter has occur, encouraged his readers and by extension he encouraged us to, to accept the, the suffering for Christ. He went to the cross. He died on their behalf. Now, since Christ suffered so much for them, they should, we were told, be willing to suffer for him. That was the expectation. That, that's what comes with carrying the name of Christ. Of course, the, the true is the same for us. As we carry the name of Christ, as we identify that he died on our behalf, He rose from the dead, shown victory over sin, and that faith in Jesus Christ allows us to have our sins forgiven by God. That great work should cause us to be willing to to suffer on his behalf. We should be willing to suffer for his name if that's what comes with being identified with Christ. It's regarding this willingness to suffer for Christ that, that Peter now turns his attention to very square, squarely as, as we come into our passage this morning, as we move into chapter 4. Peter is not going to encourage us to go out and look for trouble. That, that's not the idea here. We are never called to seek out suffering. As I've said before, the, the Bible never places any value upon suffering as, as Christians because we are obnoxious Christians. There, there's no value in being jerks. 
No, what Peter challenges us with this morning is to mentally prepare ourselves for any suffering that might come because we simply live out our lives the way God calls us to live them. We, we can summarize the main idea that, that Peter communicates in our verses as Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. Now, let me hit pause for just a moment here. I, I want to make sure that we're on the same page as to what I mean by pure living. We, we live in a culture that, that is rather health conscious. It, it doesn't mean necessarily that the majority of people in our culture are healthy. As all we have to do is look around and we know that's not the case. But, but we're well aware of what we should do to help sustain our physical health. We know we should eat certain types of food. We know we should avoid other types of food, even if we do frequently flip that upside down in our actual experience. We, we should exercise a certain amount. We should get enough sleep. We should take steps to, to minimize our stress. We know all of these things will help propagate healthy lives. And often these concepts are grouped together under an umbrella that, that's called pure living. Well, that is not what I'm talking about when I write here that Christ suffered so that we would live pure lives. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about purity from God's perspective, moral purity. Pure living means avoiding the kinds of actions that God calls sinful actions. That we embrace and execute and pursue the kinds of actions that God calls righteous actions. That's what I mean by pure living. Hopefully now we're all on the same page as we see this up here and, and we start looking at our text this morning. Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. In our text, I want us to note four points that, that Peter makes about pure living. Four things that, that pure living requires. Let's first of all read our verses. First Peter chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. Therefore... Because Christ suffered for us, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh will, has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. The, the first point to note in, in verses 1 and 2 is that pure living requires lifelong fortitude. Lifelong fortitude. Uh, I use that word fortitude because that's a strong word. I, I like that word. It means courage in pain or adversity. 
That's the idea that, that really matches Paul, um, Peter's tone here. The tone that he sets when he writes, arm yourselves. That, that's a military term. It's a military word. It, it, it means picking up a weapon, being ready for the battle that's about to come. And, and here Peter is saying that rather than picking up a weapon, we as believers are to pick up a specific attitude, a certain way of thinking, an attitude that is prepared for suffering. In fact, notice Peter writes, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. That takes us back to verse 18 of the previous chapter. The, the suffering of Christ is a historical fact. Christ has already suffered by the time Peter wrote this. It's history. There's no doubt that Christ has suffered. He was put to death when he walked this earth. He was hung on the cross. There's no doubt they suffered. And Peter uses this historical fact as motivation when he gives this imperative to arm. We are to arm ourselves with an attitude prepared for the very same that Christ suffered. Now, not to sound fatalistic, that, that's not the point, but, but believers are to adopt an attitude that, that suffering is inevitable in this life. It, it will come. That's what in the flesh means. It just means in this life. While we live on this earth, suffering is inevitable. Why did Christ suffer? Well, Peter has made the point, as I said, at the end of chapter 3. He suffered for our sins. He, he suffered the just for the unjust. He suffered on our behalf. Now Peter looks beyond the accomplishment of our redemption, the fact that our faith in, in Christ causes us to have our sins forgiven, that, that redemption that we have. He looks beyond that to one of the other purposes that Christ had. He says that Christ suffered so that we can, look at verse 2, live the rest of the time in the flesh, in other words, the rest of our lives, that we can live no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Using maybe more Pauline language than, than Peter's language, what Peter is saying is, is that Christ suffered so that he would break the bondage that sin held on us, that this bondage of sin that enslaved us so that we could now have the opportunity to live in obedience to God. There, there's a lot of debate over the, the last phrase of verse 1. By, by I think the idea that cease from sin is Peter's way of simply referring to how this union with Christ that we have through faith, we are united through with Christ, how that allows us to cease living under the bondage of sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We can now obey Christ. I want us to focus on what Peter says there then verse 2. He, he says, so that, here's the purpose behind Christ doing this, so that for the rest of the time in the flesh, in other words, for the rest of our lives, we are living for God rather than for sin. There's a purpose that motivates us to arm ourselves with, with an attitude that accepts suffering as, as part of our reality. Now, it's easy for us to understand the idea of having the, the correct mindset, the correct attitude, to, to have the fortitude necessary for a difficult task. If we begin a diet, 
We mentally prepare ourselves to feel the hunger pangs that, that will come all those, those first few days as we adjust our body to lower color amount of calories. We, we know that we'll have that pain for a while. And we prepare for that mentally. I'm sure that if we were going to be one of those crazy people who jump into the hole in the ice, you know, every year when they, they want to go swimming, a polar bear dive, I'm sure we would spend some time mentally preparing ourselves before we take that leap. Mental preparation may be turning our brains off, I'm not sure, because I'm not going to do it to find out. But we understand the idea of mental fortitude. We've all seen athletes on TV as they're, they're mentally preparing for an upcoming competition. They're getting in the zone that they need so that they'll have the fortitude required for the task before them. Well, pure living requires mental preparation. Living in a manner that, that pleases God requires that, that we deny doing a lot of the things that appear pleasurable. It, it even means resist doing things that are pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable at, at the time. The, the things that Peter refers to as lusts of men, the, the common desire of all fallen humanity, it takes mental preparation to deny these things, to deny such things day after day. We are, though, to deny ourselves we are to resist these natural desires, the, the appeal that these things have on our fallen sin nature, and exchange them for godly re- pursuits for the remainder of our lives. We're to do that when we feel like it and when we don't. We're to do that when others are watching us and when we're alone. The, the only way that we can do this consistently is if we mentally prepare ourselves for the long haul. Yet that's exactly what pure life requires. That's one of the reasons that Christ suffered. He did it. He suffered so that we would prepare ourselves to follow God for the rest of our lives. So we need to have this lifelong attitude that anticipates that that we may suffer because we're Christians. Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. The first point to note, the first thing that's required is that pure living requires lifelong fortitude. Fortitude. The second point to observe is is that pure living then separates us from unbelievers. It it separates us from unbelievers. Look at verse 3. I think we can read this verse at least with a bit of sarcasm, maybe even some snark. You know, Peter writes here with a little bit of snark. He, I think, he's one of those... Gruff fisherman, he can do that. For the time already passed is sufficient. I, I, I hear that more than sufficient. The time passed is more than sufficient. It's, it's more than enough for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Remember, Peter is most likely writing to believers who were primarily Gentiles as far as ethnicity goes. These were people that were scattered throughout that region of Asia Minor. They were, most of them were Gentiles by, by ethnicity, but remember, Peter no longer sees them that way. Gentiles is a general term he uses for unbelievers. According to verse, one, or verse 9 of chapter 2, in Peter's mind, the believers now are a new race. 
They're a chosen race. They're a new nation, a holy nation. Gentile is a term he still reserves for unbelievers. Unbelieving pagans, the ones that surround the Christians. Now, at one point, most of his readers were these pagans themselves. And at that time, they had lived their lives with the same sort of debauchery that their neighbors still engaged in. They had pursued all the things that seemed desirous at the time. But that now is past. They had had more than enough time to wallow in such destructive lifestyles before Christ entered in, before God saved them. God saved them from that life for something better, something that was to be their pursuit now to serve God. Does that sound familiar? We all have a past. We all have a past. We all have a time prior to God saving us. For some of us, that, that past may be a long period of time, and it may be rather recent now in our history. For other of us, it may be flipped that that past was a very short time in our lives and, and far in our past. But in either case, whether it was long or short or, or somewhere in between, whatever amount of time that was, Peter says that was more than enough time to have indulged your sinful desires. Now you're at a different stage of life. You're at a different life entirely. You're now at a time that, that was bought by the blood of Christ to, to serve God is your purpose. Forget the past. Look to the future. Look at the list of things that Peter says are characteristics of unbelievers. It's quite a vice list. If you compare your English translations, you'll see that, that there's no way really translate one for one the, the Greek words that Peter used to English equivalents. So you'll see some adjustments, some variations in, in English. But what is clear is that he gives us a, a combination of terms that link sexual sin, drinking, and parties. He links those three things together with this list. Apparently, the hedonistic tendencies that, that naturally combine these three things together when, when people begin to indulge their, their physical desires was just as common in the Greco-Roman world as it is now. Sexual sins, drinking, and parties, those three things go together. Frequently, these sins find a link and oftentimes they then link themselves into some kind of false religion that, that says it's okay to enjoy these things in your life. You know, debauchery does not change from generation to generation. Hugh Hefner did not create the Playboy lifestyle. He just marketed it. It's been around forever. Ever since sin entered the world. Peter is not taking time here to denounce such sins. He, he considers it given that, that believers would understand these things are part of the former life that God saved us from. They are the reasons we needed Christ to save us. Peter's point is more direct and, frankly, more painfully practical. Believers must not only affirm that these things are sinful, believers must cease indulging in them. It's a sad reality that there are piles of Christians who've had their lives destroyed by these kinds of sins. 
rather than separating from these various vices, putting sexual sin, alcohol, drinking parties, these things out of lives completely, Christians attempt to indulge in moderation. Yet none of these sins are satisfied with moderation. Looking at a bit of pornography leads to a desire for more sexual satisfaction. Indulging in minor alcoholic buzz prompts a desire for more. Being the person with restraint at a party quickly breaks down to having a better time than planned. And so on. One of the things that that saddens me in our American Christian context is oftentimes it seems like the people who least understand this reality are those who grew up in the church. Those who grew up in Christian homes, in Christian churches, those who came to know Jesus at a young age. It seems like rather than rejoicing that, that these vices were not a big part of their life because they were saved at a young age, they have this yearning to play around the edges of, of such activities, thinking that somehow they will be the ones able to manage these vices. Friends, our Savior suffered so that we will be different than the unbelieving world around us. He suffered so that we can be different than the unbelieving world around us. If these kind of things were ever part of our lives, such behavior should now be in our past. We should have nothing to do with any of these kinds of vices now. There there should be a separation between us and the unbelievers around us. We're called to live pure lives, not sinful lives. Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. Pure living separates us from unbelievers. That's the second point that we see in our text here. The second point then tends to naturally generate this third point that we can see. Point number three, peer living provokes hostility from unbelievers. It provokes hostility. In verse four here, Peter goes on and he reminds the, the readers of something that I'm sure that they were well aware of already. Their unbelieving neighbors are surprised that they no longer participate in the activities of the previous verses. There was a point in time where the now Christians did all those things, and their, their neighbors, their friends, are shocked that they no longer do them. You know, one thing that's natural about, about culture, all culture, it doesn't matter what kind of culture, the thing that's natural about all culture is that it expects uniformity. Even subcultures, though, those subcultures that, that develop as a reaction against the primary culture, the subcultures expect uniformity. Now, I expect because... I'm old and kind of out of it. I probably don't know the latest subcultures that are happening in America. But we'll go back to the things I know about a little bit. Think about the goth, the goth subculture. How, do you, how did you know a person was part of the goth subculture? There was a uniformity in dress and behaviors that, that immediately identified someone as part of it. Same with the hip-hop culture. If we go larger, we can think about Southern culture. We know Southern culture because of these characteristics. Korean-American culture has characteristics to it. It doesn't matter what culture or subculture we're talking about. There's an expectation that there'll be characteristics that are held in common. 
There's a uniformity. Well, when someone suddenly walks away from the culture that they've been participating in, that draws attention to those who were their friends before they walked away. When that same person ceases to do many of the things that, that make up part of that culture's identity, there's an eyebrow or two that's raised. Such responses are natural when the person ceases engaging. But now let's add a spiritual component. Let's take a step further. When the activities that the culture indulges in are sinful, there is an inward knowledge that the activities are wrong. God made us in his image. God created us in his image, and as part of that image, he installed a moral compass within us that that knows right and wrong. Now, sin has bent the needle of that moral compass, so oftentimes we do confuse right and wrong. But the compass is still there. When a new believer suddenly ceases indulging in sinful activities because of Christ, his or her changed behavior highlights to all of his or her former friends that their moral compass is bent. Notice, they still want to engage in what Peter calls the same excesses of dissipation that they had always been engaging in. In other words, the people around want them to engage in these excesses of, disp- dis- this excesses of dissipation. Don't you love that phrase? Excesses of dissipation. Try saying that three times fast. The word excess is a word that actually is a word that describes the outpouring of a wide stream. Think about the mouth of a wide river as it pours out all its water into the ocean. That's the excess. Dissipation means an empty lifestyle, something that's devoid of wholeness. Uh, A huge wide river of emptiness. That's what they want to engage in. What a great description for these vices that, that always ask for more and more. They, they promise fulfillment but never deliver. They leave emptiness and brokenness behind. Anyway, since the unbelievers want to continue in these sinful activities, the, the fact that their sin is highlighted by the new believers who walk away creates a normal response of hostility. After all, just by walking away, the believers are saying, you're living wrong. And hostility is the response. Peter says they malign you. Specifically, the the word he uses here in this context would mean they slander you. The the believers here, they're, they're taking verbal heat from former friends because they no longer indulge in former activities. You know, we we say that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt us. It ain't true. It isn't true. Words hurt. Slander hurts. Being accused of wrongdoing when we're actually right-doing, it hurts. Minding our own business, trying to serve God by doing his will and then being attacked for it, it hurts. We, we think that the, of this as somewhat mild suffering because, you know, we can point to Christians who are imprisoned and, and even killed for their faith. And we say, you know, just being slandered is mild, but 
is enough suffering that Peter calls it out here? Because it wears us down. It hurts, and it wears and wears. Have you been on the receiving end of slander for doing right? I know I have. I do know that many of you have. I expect that most of you, if not all of you, have. Our society increasingly hates righteousness. But it always embraced unrighteousness. It's not new. Because that's what sin does. Sin embraces unrighteousness. Yeah, I know there are new believers who have lost family and friends because they strive for pure living. There are believers who are accused by family and friends of no longer being fun, of being holier than thou, of being too high-minded, of being legalistic, and all kinds of other accusations that all boil down to being maligned for doing right. This is not new. Pure living provokes hostility from unbelievers. It has from the very beginning. Let's remember, Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. Pure living provokes hostility from unbelievers. That's point number three. Fourth, pure living prepares us for judgment. It prepares us for judgment. As Peter's done many times in this letter already, once more he, he, he points to the future. He, he, he looks at the reality of now. Here's what's going on right now, but he points to the future. The unbelievers may accuse the believers of having a problem in their newfound faith. That, that's part of this slander. You guys have a problem because you're not living the way the rest of us live. You're weird. They accuse them of having a problem, but in reality... It's the unbelievers who have the problem. Peter reminds them it's the unbelievers who also face judgment. They face the coming judgment of God. Believers who are living pure lives, they're prepared to stand before God when he judges all mankind. They're prepared to come before holy God and give an account because they point to the righteousness of Christ who died on their behalf. They stand in the righteousness of Christ And for that reason, they've already been declared righteous by God. And that declaration of righteousness is further evidenced by their pure living. By contrast, the unbelievers are unprepared. Eternal damnation awaits them. Remember, Peter's writing to people who are suffering. From verse 6, it appears that by this time, some believers have died. Now, since he only mentioned being maligned in verse 4. I'm assuming that most of these deaths, if not all of them at this point, are natural deaths. They're not because of persecution for being Christian. They're, they're not martyrs. They've simply died. Now, the suffering they're facing threatens to intensify, as we've seen earlier in the letter, where death could be a possibility that for Christians, and he's told them be prepared for that, but that doesn't seem to be the case now. Still, it seems that part of the maligning is that the unbelievers now are pointing to those believers who have died. So what benefit does it have? You guys walked away, you're doing this, what you call pure living, and you die just like the rest of us. Isn't that the, the world's way? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die? Their point is, you die just like the rest of us. 
It doesn't matter if you believe in this Jesus or not. But he reminds them, all believers, whether they've lived or they died, all believers will live when the day of judgment comes. They will live according to the Spirit. Peter keeps pointing to what is coming. Because knowing what we are facing in the future, that has a great impact on what we do in the here and now. I've been listening to a podcast lately on World War I. And the podcaster, he spent a lot of time talking about the, the conditions that the soldiers faced when they were in the trenches of World War I. The, the conditions were horrific. The battle lines were frozen for months as both sides of the conflict dug in. Neither side was able to make an effective offense and punch through the, the dug-in defenses of, of the opponent side, but, but that didn't mean they didn't try. And hundreds of thousands of soldiers died in the attempts for both sides. In one of the episodes, the podcaster was talking about how many of the soldiers, when they knew that their time to go over the top, that's what they, they called leaving their, their protective trenches and attacking the dug-in fortified enemy, going over the top, when they knew their time to go over the top was coming tomorrow, they would spend time writing farewell letters to their wives. They fully expected their life would end. And knowing that changed what they did in their final hours. It was knowing what was coming in the future that caused them to write these letters of farewell that they would have never written otherwise. And in many cases, it was a true farewell. Well, we know what is coming. We know the day of judgment is coming. And we know that when that day comes, we will stand before the righteous, impartial judge of all mankind. And if we know Jesus Christ as Savior, we know that when that day comes, we will live in the Spirit. That's the promise of God. He's assured us. The, the, the opinions and the slanders of unbelievers that we've encountered along the way, they, they mean nothing when that day comes. What unbelievers think have absolutely no bearing on the will of God. Peter brings this up because knowing that this day is coming affects what we do now. It focuses us on living pure lives so that we can stand with joy on that day. It's likely that, as I said, unbelievers were pointing to the deaths of Christians to argue there's no value in believers living pure lives. Peter reminds them the value is future. The reason they can't see it now is because it's future. It's not immediate. The value is eternal. It's not temporal. Pure living prepares us for judgment. Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. Pure living prepares us for judgment. I talk about the Pure Michigan campaign. As we noted at the outset, the goal is to draw tourism dollars to our state. Well, Pure Life campaign, the life campaign that we've been challenged to, to pursue, is one of the reasons that Christ suffered. It's, he suffered so that we can live this. 
This morning, we've observed from Peter that peer living requires lifelong fortitude. Peer living requires us to separate from unbelievers. It provokes hostility from unbelievers, but it also prepares us for the judgment. As you think on these points this morning, let me ask you, are you living pure lives? Have you walked away from the things that, that characterize the former life, the things that still characterize the unbelievers around you, and are you pursuing the things that are clearly the will of God? It's not easy. No one ever said it would be. It is one of the reasons, though, that Christ died for you. He died so that you could live a pure life. So are you spurning his suffering by by failing to, to pursue purity in your life? Or are you magnifying his suffering by living pure lives? Christ suffered so that we can live pure lives. Let's pray. Father, this morning... Your text that you've brought us to is a very direct text. It challenges us to think differently. And as we think differently, to live differently. It is very direct that living differently will be hard. It will bring hardship upon us. Yet you, the one who saved us, is calling us to do exactly that. So, Father, I pray that you would work within each of us today. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us, Father, where we need conviction. Strengthen us where we need strength. Embolden us where we need to be emboldened. Comfort where we need comfort. So that we might live joyful lives magnifying our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.